Today we get to remember the triumphal entry and the, the focus really of this liturgically is, the, is Jesus as king. And it's worth noting that I didn't give much thought to it, but when we planned the series on missions that the idea of extending his kingdom would fall on the day when we celebrate his kingship. And so we're going to talk about God being king today. But before we do that, I want to remember what it felt like to be a kid. And I lived in Dale City uh, between the ages of 7 and 13. Some of you guys know where that is. It's, it's near, it's outside Manassas. It's in Woodbridge. My mom would take me to Potomac Mills more Sundays than I wanted to go, or more weekends. I don't remember if it was Sunday, but I just remember hating it. I just remember being there too long, hiding in the racks while my mom tried to shop for deals. And uh, th- that, that was life as a kid in, in Dale City. And we had this blacktop at where I lived. There was, we played basketball. Uh, there was a dip in it. So we watched uh, frogs or tadpoles turn into frogs in this time of year. Um, it, was not, it was not level, but uh, it was fun. And I remember this one particular instance where uh, it was me and a group of other boys. And I don't remember the game we were about to play. I don't remember why there was a need for this. I remember that one of us said something like, well, I'm the leader. And another one said, well, I'm the president. And then eventually someone, it might have been me, I don't remember, but one of us said, well, I'm king. And, uh, and I, don't think it, I don't think it escalated to totalian dictatorship, but it was, it was problematic to say the least. I don't know if we ever got to, to an actual game. Uh, and we joke and we laugh, but, but there's something inside of us that wants to be in control. And sometimes we want to be in control of the people around us. I think most of the time we feel like we're in control of our circumstances. And when we face stress, that what's happening is we are realizing that I am not in control of my circumstances. But we all, we all have this thing where we want to be king. You may not necessarily want to wear a crown or a tiara, but you wouldn't mind it if when you told someone to do something... Well, they did it. If you're a parent, you know what this feels like. Is you have to fight between the desire to express God's authority delegated to you and your desire to express your authority that no one has delegated to you over your children. As spouses, we know this. Uh, you know, uh, I remember, I won't say that. Anyways, it was a Bible study among men, and there were some questions that were very unwisely being asked about relating to their spouses, but uh, we all want to be king from time to time, and we've, going, we've been going through this series on what we want to accomplish as, as a church body, and our desire really is to help people encounter Christ in a meaningful and impactful way, help them to experience biblical community like Pastor Jermaine talked about last week, and then help us to extend the kingdom of God. But the two questions that I, I think that we need to get clear on are, first of all, Whose kingdom are we extending, and how do we go about extending it? Whose kingdom are we extending, and how do we go about extending it? So I'm going to invite you all to stand with me as we prepare to read the Word of God together. It's been a little while. Well, I think we did it last week, but before that, I'd had a bunch of long passages, and so this one I think is manageable. So we're going to read this together. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And when you pray, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you as a citizen of your kingdom. I come to you as a servant of your kingship. And I come to you, Lord, as one who has been saved by your Savior. And Lord, we, we present ourselves to you, God, and submit ourselves to your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would change our disposition toward your authority. That you would allow us to step into greater degrees of submission to your will. And Lord, I pray that you would address the places in our heart where fear or rebellion or disinterest would lead us to try and be the kings of our own life. Heavenly Father, I desire for us to be a people who express your kingship. Lord, that we would extend your kingdom by acknowledging that you are king in our lives in our words, in our actions. Holy Spirit, change us and transform us, I pray. Encourage us and help us to see that you are the good king, the right king, the only king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys can be seated. So Jesus is teaching about prayer. His disciples at, at various points, ask him, hey, you probably know how to talk to God. How do we pray? And, and the reality of prayer is that your prayer reveals something of your posture. Your prayer reveals your posture towards God. Few things reveal what you believe about God as much as prayer. If you don't pray a lot, it means you don't think that God is interested in what's going on. Sometimes we don't think God's interested because we feel like these are small problems. God's a big God. He's busy and he's distant. Sometimes we don't pray because we think we're a big God. And we're, instead of praying, we're thinking about our problems. And we're trying to pray to ourselves to get an answer. But our, our prayers reflect our, our posture. How often does your prayer life... You don't have to raise your hand, but... How often does your prayer life uh, resemble a honey-do list? You know, God, uh, can you go to the store and, and get me some peace? You know, Lord, can you fix this thing going on in my, in my workplace? Heavenly Father, can you, can you please, uh, can you uh, buy a different attitude for my spouse? God, can you bring me new children? I'm just kidding. We love our children. I love my children. But sometimes we can approach God and it begins to just be list-oriented. God, I, I need this, I want this, I need this, I want this. And, and let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with telling God what, he, what you need. 
And, and God is he's good and he's gracious. I have three children, and, and there have been many times where they came to me asking for things which were, one might say, ridiculous. But I listened and I loved them. And I didn't begrudge the fact that they were asking for these things. You know, you can have a cookie. Okay, well, can I have two? You can have zero. Okay, I'll take one. You know, it's okay when we come to God with our, our, our desires big and small. And in fact, Jesus touches on it in verse, I believe it's verse 8, when he says this, Do not be like the, the, the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. His point was, was, you don't have to say anything to God, but his point was you can be honest with God and you don't have to manipulate God. You see, the Gentiles, the, the people here, they were, they were treating God kind of like uh, they were playing a martial arts video game, and if they just got the right combination of words, boom, God would do what, he want, what, what they wanted. It was manipulation, not relationship. Now, with relationship, God wants to know what's going on. He wants, or he wants for us to express what's going on. You know, he's omniscient, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to talk to him. And so he invites that. There's nothing wrong with telling God what you need, and in fact, he invites us, but uh, but how we do that, it, it, it matters. You know, he goes on, and, and the, the second half of this prayer, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. These are all our needs. These are things that, that he's inviting us to express to our God. God cares about your needs, but, but he is not your personal assistant. God cares about your needs, but he is not your personal assistant. The, 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 the problem with honeydew lists is not the list itself. The problem is the, the posture that we take. And so Jesus gives us the first half of this prayer that we're going to look about. And uh, he's going to teach us that God is, God is king and we're not. God is king and we're not. And so he says this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He starts with this rich introduction, which you, we could take weeks and unpack this, and I would love to, and I feel like I'm, 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 I'm selling you short, but for the sake of time, because I know we all want to have lunch, I'm going to gloss through these parts, recognizing the fact that please go back and meditate on this, because there's so much here that we could draw out. But he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First, I want to give you three observations. First of all, he prays, our Father. And in Paul's letters to, to the Ephesians, Paul tells us that, that we have been adopted. It says that he, we've been adopted as sons. And, and by that, he means that we've been adopted in such a way that, that we receive an inheritance. And, and he did that before the foundations of the world. So before God said, let there be light, he had decided whom he would adopt. He had looked at our lives. He had looked at you and said, I'm going to choose you. And the thing about adoption is it's not an agreement between a child and a parent. Someone steps into the life of this orphan and that person chooses to commit their life to this child. Now in, in humanity it's imperfect and sometimes that doesn't last. But in God's economy, when he chooses a person, he, he chooses that person and they are adopted. And, and when, we, when we hear that, and we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We are adopted into his family, and we are forever sons and daughters of God. We can approach him and, and call him Father. Secondly, he 
is our Father in heaven. He's not just a nice guy down the street. He's not just uh, a guy with a, a great job and a, and a wonderful career who's able to pay you the bills and, and meet some of your needs. God dwells in heaven. And he's divine. And he's different from any other father you and I might have. And that's, that bears a moment of thought and meditation that God, your God, your, your father, your father, your, your dad, he's divine. There's nothing that he can't accomplish in your life. I don't know how many times this week I, I was wrestling with God and saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Trying to argue with God that maybe his plans were not, not doable. And we see it in scripture. God calls Moses and, and God says, Moses, Moses, i got a plan for you. I want you to do something for me. You're going to go uh, get the Israelites and, and bring them out of slavery. And, and, and Moses says, I, God, I don't know if that's going to work. Moses forgot that God was divine. He was God in heaven, our Father who was in heaven. And 30 says that we should revere God's name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or hallowed, depending on how you grew up, be thy name. Names often represent the person they're attached to. Uh, we, we don't quite get a sense of that in our culture, I think, because for the most part, um, like James means usurper, but you wouldn't know that. And you wouldn't necessarily say, well, Eddie, you're going to be a usurper. Um, Edward means protector, but again, I don't know that my parents were explicitly saying, Eddie, you're going to be a protector. But when, when God, when we speak to God and we say God or we say Yahweh or we say Jesus and we, we pray in your name, what we're doing is we're, we're invoking the personhood of God. We're invoking who he is. And if we do that, we need to do that with a sense of fear. A sense that, that I'm holding something precious and I dare not treat this with disrespect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And for those of us who carry the name Christian, that means that our lives either bring a good report or ill repute to the name of God. It's not a question of whether or not you're saying something about God. It's whether you're saying something accurate about God. How often do we find ourselves not representing who Jesus is, not representing who God is in a way that is consistent with him, his character and his nature. It's something that I struggle with. And so he calls us to hold his name with respect and dignity. You see how this is different when you start your prayers this way? It's different than a, than a honeydew list. And, and this is important because this introductory part, it's not introductory, but it does precede the needs that we express. This part... It, it sets the stage for how we approach God. It positions us. You know, again, <laughs> so many of my analogies have to do with children. But uh, do you ever have your kid come in and they just come in the door and they just say, Hey, I need to do this. Can I do that? And you're like, all right, go back outside. Knock on the door. Hi, Daddy. And then make your crazy request. Right? The request hasn't changed, but the, the posture is significant. 
Not that I'm important, but I want to teach my kids that, that how they approach the people they address is important. And so he says, when you approach God, approach him with reverence, with dignity, with honor, understanding that he is king. And he goes on. And he says this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Three words that redefine how you and I relate to our lives. Three words that change everything if you take them seriously. Let's start with the first word, your. You know, when I, uh, when I was playing on the blacktop with my friends, doing whatever game that what didn't even matter, we just wanted to be in charge of one another. Um, it, was, it was my will be done. My kingdom come. Mine, mine, mine. You know, I think it's, it's uh, Finding Nemo, which is a movie that I'm, I'm not encouraging children, but whatever. It, it, you, have the, you have the seagulls, and they're like, mine, 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 mine. And that's, that's our heart's disposition. Mine. Me. Mine. And as we mature from, from babies, the danger is that we don't, we don't actually mature from that attitude. We just become more sophisticating more sophisticated in expressing it. Like we go from just, I'm going to take this from you because I'm a baby and laugh at you because it's hilarious when I can make other babies laugh to being a teenager who's maybe not saying mine, but the attitude is mine, my life, my decisions, my choices. To being an adult who's saying my decisions, my choices, my life, my money. My relationships. But he says, your. You and I are in constant battle, but it's not a battle with your spouse. It's not a battle with your coworker. It's not a battle with your neighbor. It's not a battle with, with these, all these other people. It's a battle between your my and your. The my in your heart and the your in your heart. This is, this is what, if you want to know what indwelling sin looks like. There's a doctrine of a Christian faith that that says that that even after we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we're saved, there's still this sin that's just kind of lodged in our soul that doesn't get dislodged until we die. And it's called indwelling sin or sin nature. And if you wanted to give it a name, you could give it the name my. And my wars with your. The second word he gives is kingdom. If the war is first fought between my and your, the second war in our hearts is between monarchy and democracy. And I'm not talking about the American Revolution. I'm so thankful to live in a democracy because you and I, there's no one who's going to be a, yeah, anyways. (laughs) We live in America. But when it comes to our relationship with God, this is not a committee. This is not a committee. This is not, a, you know, Jesus, it's you and me. Let's sit down. Let's talk about my plan, my life plan. I want you to give me some of your wisdom and input because I know you've got a lot of experience in this area. And then you and I, we're going to kind of figure out what my five-year plan is. You know, God, I, I, I'm going to, I have this relationship with this girl and, and, and I want to hear some of the things that you have to say in your word. Uh, and I'll, t- I'll bring it to, to consideration because, man, you're smart. You've done a lot of things great. Thank you for that. Uh, and we'll consider how this might affect my life. Um, 
Jesus doesn't leave, uh, doesn't leave room for a committee or, or, or democratic rule. If God rules your life at all, he must rule it alone. If God rules your life at all, he must rule it all. Do you live a kingdom life or a democracy life? When you read a, a challenging scripture, do you say to yourself, well, you know, I'll decide later, later whether to, to obey or disobey that. You know, I know Pastor Eddie said this, and, I, and then he, 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 put it, he showed me where it was in scripture, but uh, we'll see. And I'm, I'm not talking about the things that I say from the pulpit, which I hope I don't do too much, that is just, hey, this is Eddie's idea. If it's Eddie's idea, take it or leave it. I like spicy food, Eddie's idea. I'm a fan of soup, Eddie's idea. <laughs> Some people are not fans of soup. That's fine. I've got the mic. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. These, these, are, not, these are not Eddie's ideas. And at that point... The question is, are you living a kingdom life or a democracy life? When you avoid certain parts of the Bible because you don't want to hear what that part has to say, you're not living a kingdom life. When you don't read the Bible because you don't think it's important enough to spend the time on it, you're not living a kingdom life. When you feel like you've got too much going on that you just you can't crack open the Bible for five minutes, you're not living as though this Bible is the directive for your life. And if you feel conviction about that, please hear, I love you, and I'm not the one that's making you feel bad. And I've, because I've been here. I, I can relate to what you're saying. You know, I, I've not been a mom at any point in my life, but I do remember what it was to be a, a husband and help my wife, and, and when we were getting, you know, Occasional sleep, like it was a hobby. Um, something we really enjoyed, but didn't really get time to do. But in those moments, it was still our responsibility to pursue God. And, and as a side note, for those of you who feel some of the weight of what I'm saying, let me encourage you that there is grace to obey. You, some of you, you don't feel grace, you don't feel like God's wind carrying you, not because God doesn't love you, but because you want to walk in disobedience to God and then say, God, would you bless my life? When he says, I would love to bless your life, would you get your life right? And again, getting your life right is not what gets you saved, but as Christians, as we're walking out what God's word says, he invites us to live a life that calls him king, not just in word, but in deed. I'm getting off the page. Okay. So he says, your kingdom, and then he says this, come, your kingdom come. What does it look like for a kingdom to come or arrive? I thought about this, and you know, when you think about kings and kingdoms, you don't really think of a kingdom coming to town. You think of a king coming to town, right? You don't, it's a weird thing for him to say. So how does God, how does God extend the kingdom? Well, I think that the second part of this verse is, is a parallel and gives us an idea. If you go to verse 10 and you look at the second part, he says, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want to know how God's kingdom is extended? It's extended wherever God's will is done. God's kingdom is extended wherever God's will is done. Which means that your life and my life, it's not just intended to be something where we're obeying God and we're not going to hell, but your life is intended to be an outpost of the kingdom of God. It's intended to be an embassy where people can see, oh, that's a different kingdom. They look at your life, your neighbors look at your life and they realize, man, there's something different about this, these people. So how do we live in the kingdom? How do we reflect the nature of his kingship? How do we know what his will is? Second Peter says this. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Paul, or Peter's talking. And he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Talking about scripture, Peter says, people didn't make this up. This came about, this Bible came about as a result of God superintending authors writing exactly what God wanted them to write. Why am I saying this? Because if we're trying to figure out what God's will is, one of the first places and really the primary place that we ought to look is the place where God has expressed himself most clearly and completely in his word. We're a charismatic church. We believe that God still speaks. But if you're more interested in hearing God speak apart from his word, you're out of line. And if you're unwilling to, to listen to what God says in his word and what he took so much time and an effort to craft because you want to hear a different word, I would ask why. That goes for me as well. We need to hear from his word. In Psalm 119, 105, it says that God's word is, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And that implies that it is intended for our direction to give us insight, to know how to live. Do you want to know how to do God's will? Read God's word. He's given us the scriptures to show us his will. Do you want to know what you're meant to do in life? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. 31, 1 Corinthians, you don't have to go there now. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What does it look like to give God glory? Well, it looks like to do things that are consistent with his nature and character. Does it glorify God to lie to your neighbor? No. Does it glorify God to, to steal? No. Does it glorify God to, to not be faithful in your marriage? No. Does it glorify God to be sacrificial in your giving? Yes. Does it glorify God for you to, to honor people who persecute you? Yes. Does it glorify God for you to treasure God's word? Yes. These are things that are in the word. And if you want to know, what should I do with my life? God may not say chapter and verse, well, you should go to Virginia Tech and pursue engineering, and then you should get a, you know, and then go work for, you know, MITRE. It, do, it doesn't say that, you know, at least not in my version. Um, but it does say that there's a way to live that will fulfill your ultimate purpose, and that, that way to live is by glorifying God. Do you want to know how your marriage should look, what you should do in your marriage? Read Genesis 1, chapters one through, or chapter 1 and through 3. Look at how God arranged it. Read Ephesians chapter, really read most of Paul's letters, because he talks about marriage in all of them, but Ephesians chapter 5. Do you want to know how to fight sin? 
Read, read Colossians chapter 3. You know, you want to know where everything is going? Where are we going, right? We're in the U.S. and things are going crazy. There's tragedy and there's, there's discord and there's, there's polarization. Where, where's all this going? What's the ultimate purpose? Start reading the Bible. Read Genesis. Read Exodus. And read through the, entire, in the entirety of Scripture and see that God has a redemptive arc that he's working that he created uh, creation for his glory in the beginning. He set humanity in Eden, and he said, you're going to work. Work is a good thing, believe it or not. Now, the, the, the fall has made it a, a difficult thing, but it's a good thing, and God wanted us to reflect his glory as we multiplied in families. Sin came, messed everything up. God allowed himself to be, uh, to be ridiculed and, and walked away from. He gave us judges. He gave us prophets. He gave us a priestly system, all of this in the Old Testament, ultimately showing us that none of these things worked, that we needed a better, a better king because the kings just couldn't get the people to obey. And the kings themselves often wouldn't obey. A better priest because the priestly system, the system that we talk about lambs and killing animals and slaughtering, we're like, that's weird. Why is that all in there? It's in there because it set the stage for us to realize that there was not enough sacrifice that would cover my sin. And he gave us prophets who spoke on behalf of God so that at the end of all the prophets that you read, and you, ran, you read the prophets and you're like, man, this is messed up. These people are messed up. And I don't really even understand how God's handling this. I mean, people are dying, they're being smited. What is this about? Well, it's to show that even when the people of God heard the word of God, they still would not obey. And at the end of the Old Testament, you look at it and you're like, man, we need a better king. We need a better prophet. We need a better priest. And then the gospels happen. And we see it's Jesus. He's the word of God. He is the prophet, the ultimate prophet of God. He is the high priest of high priests. And he is what? The king of kings. And then you see God unravel all of the details of this gospel message in the New Testament. And you go to Revelation, which is not just a weird book that some people make weird movies about. It speaks to the reality that one day, family, one day, all the pain that you're experiencing right now, all the difficulty that you're experiencing, all the discord that you're experiencing, all the brokenness that you don't even want to think about right now, he's going to deal with in a moment. All the things you're saying to yourself, man, I wish God would avenge me. I wish he would vindicate me. I wish he would fix this. He will fix. And we stand, in Revelation, we stand at the end of time looking at God's effort to bring us not back to Eden, but into a new temple, a new garden, a new reality where we are walking in his purposes. This is why he's given us scripture. That wasn't in my notes, but I want you to know that scripture has bearing for your life. If you want, if you want to pray the prayer, thy will be done, and you want to know what will you need to do, you have to get into the word. But if you get into the word, I promise you it will bear fruit. When it comes to God's will, it can become difficult. It can be hard. It can, it can be easy to pray, you know, God, your kingdom come. I'm praying for God's kingdom to come. But when he comes and knocks and he says, what about that area of your, your heart where, where you're, reign, you're reigning and I'm not reigning? He says, God, I said your kingdom come. I didn't mean like here. I'm an American. When I go home, that's my house. 
In Matthew 10, chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus tells us that to follow him, to follow Jesus, is to deny himself, to take up his cross, and then follow. So for us to, to follow Jesus means that we have to deny ourselves. And by that, I think he means deny those things, that, that little my in your heart, deny that. How do I deny it? You pick up the instrument of your own death, the cross, and you walk it out daily. Because every day you got to beat that my down. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. So I want you to follow me on this kind of logical progression. He's, to see God's... First point, to see God's kingdom, we have to obey his will, right? Your kingdom come, how does it happen? Your will be done, right? That's our prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. To see God's kingdom, we have to obey his will. Secondly, Jesus tells us that in order to obey his will, we have to deny ourselves. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus says that in order for that to work, we have to say, my will not be done, so the conclusion is, in order to see God's will done in your life, you have to lay down your own life and your own will and seek to obey his will. In order to see God's kingdom, you have to lay down your own kingdom. If you want to follow Jesus in any real sense, you have to stop following yourself. And here's the most radical thing that I came across as I was preparing for this message. Jesus models this in his own life. So we have this Palm Sunday moment where he, he comes in and there's a donkey and everyone's like, Jesus, you're the best. We love you. But shortly thereafter, those same people are going to be crying for him to be crucified. You realize that, right? right? Mobs are not things to be trusted. Side note. Um, and, and, and so Jesus, soon after this, this moment, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that he's about to be crucified. And, and he prays. And I'm just going to read this to you in, in Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, talking about um, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. If you're, if you're sorrowful and troubled, hear this. Jesus understands. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed and said, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. I don't know how that works. In the, you know, we can have a whole other conversation about the Trinity. I don't know how this works. What I do know is that, that Matthew is telling us in God's inspired word that in this moment of, of trial, Jesus has a desire that he's going to lay down so that God's kingship can be expressed in his life. And if you're thinking to yourself, oh, it's just too much for me to obey. It's just too much. The writer of Hebrews puts it really pastorally. And he says, you've not, you've not uh, uh, stood up against sin to the point of shedding blood. He basically, Jesus jukes us. And he says, you're not, your problem's not that big. <laughs> you can obey God. 
Because here Jesus is, and he's looking at the prospect of not just death, but torture and torture and torture and torture, and then death, and, and, and not just death, but being subjected to the perfect righteous wrath of God. And he says, you know what? If this is possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he prays that three times. God shows through Jesus his own willingness to embrace his will. So how do we, how do we extend this kingdom? Right? We see that Jesus extends the kingdom. How do we do that? It starts by recognizing that God is our father and trusting Jesus as our savior. Right? It starts by, by seeing God in the way that he has presented himself. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And, and to, to have him as king is to acknowledge that he has come to save you. Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted that, that the my is not enough? The my in your heart is not enough? Whatever you can do is not enough to bridge the gap of your own sinfulness to get to God. No amount of good works is going to get you to God. And in fact, all of the bad things that you and I have done, all the sinfulness, all the, all the unrighteous rebellious disposition toward God is what, what, what brings con- condemnation to us. So there's nothing that we can do, but Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. He died on the cross for our sins in our place, rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death in order that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. And whenever we seek God's word in scripture and obey God's will, we establish God's kingdom. Or we allow God to establish his kingdom. Our lives are outposts for God's kingdom. When you choose to forgive your spouse because God's word says to forgive, you have made your marriage an outpost of God's kingdom. When you choose to love truth at work and not deceive or lie or steal, you've made work an outpost of God's kingdom. When you open up your home to others to show them kindness and hospitality because of the love that you've received from Christ, you've made your home an outpost of God's kingdom. And when people ask you why you live the way you do, you can share the good news that you are a citizen of a different kingdom and you have a different king. Listen to the words of this hymn by Harriet Bull. It says, My father is rich in houses and land. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Of rubies and diamonds and silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold. My father's own son, the savior of men, once wandered o'er the earth earth as the poorest of them, but now he is reigning forever on high and will give me a home in heaven by and by. I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice and an alien by birth, but I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown, a tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing, all glory to God, I'm a child of the king. Are you a child of the king? And you can lay down your own will. You can pick up your cross and say no to your my and make your life an outpost of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make my life an outpost of your kingdom. Lord, I, I pray that the places that, that, that even I have been challenged to submit to you, Lord, that, that I would do so. 
Lord, I submit my life to you freshly. And I pray that you would make uh, this congregation and this people a people who, who openly embrace your will, who openly call you king, and in whose lives we, in, we submit ourselves to your will. If you're in this room and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the, as the king of your life, today's the day to, to respond and trust him. If you want to trust him, would you just raise your hand? If you want to turn away from everything you know to be sin and turn to him. Well, Father, I pray that you would make us, you would make us kingdom people. And like Jesus, I pray that we'd be able to say, not, not my will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, family.